are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, welcome on this Thursday afternoon, the first Thursday of the year 2024. I got to keep remembering that year number in my mind, just like you, I'm prone to forget it. Uh, but we're in the year 2024. This is January 4th, and I don't know when you're going to view this. Uh, welcome to our lo- all our live viewers. Welcome to the viewers who join us from TWR 360, that great ministry uh, that has done for so many decades with shortwave radio. Now they have an outstanding web presence with their website, TWR 360, uh, reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ with the word of God. And uh, we're here together. Glad you could join me. If we've never been introduced before, my name is David Guzik, and I am here to do a live question and answer program. Uh, Where I live, it's Thursday afternoon at noon. I live on the west coast of the United States. Wherever it is around the world that you're joining us, we're very pleased that you can make it. Our normal practice is that we begin with a lead question, and I'm going to get to that lead question in just a moment. But again, it's wonderful that you can be here with us. Uh, It's a great start to a new year, and I hope you're blessed in Christ. You know, remember that um, believers, those who are born again by God's Spirit, they really do enjoy every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And I pray that that's you and your experience uh, right now at the beginning of the year and all through the year. Let's talk about our lead question here. Uh, it comes from someone with the screen name, My Little Dance Diary, who asked, and I can't remember whether this came in on a leftover question from our live chat, maybe email, maybe social media, I don't quite remember. Uh, but My Little Dance Diary asked, I have a question about Exodus chapter 11, the newborns, the Passover. Uh, Here's the question. This God who is supposed to love all his creation would kill innocent babies to make a point to evildoers? Doesn't seem very compassionate to me. Can anyone explain to me, please? Well, uh, my little dance diary, I'm here to give an answer to your question. Of course, what you're talking about is what is contained in Exodus chapter 11, where God judged the Egyptians because not only would they not let the Israelites go from their slavery, but they had held the Israelites in slavery for almost 400 years. And 400 years of that kind of enslavement of a whole people group uh, invites the judgment of God. And God brought his judgment upon the Egyptians after warning them with many, many lesser judgments. uh, God brought this ultimate judgment against the Egyptians when, by the way, he would not respond. The Egyptians would not respond to any of God's prior judgments. God brought this ultimate judgment of slaying the firstborn in every Egyptian household, those that were not covered and marked by the Passover blood. There's a lot to get into that. But basically, uh, the viewer, My Little Dance Diary, is asking, how could this be of God? Quote, "Um, this God who is supposed to love all his creation would kill innocent babies to make a point to evildoers. Doesn't seem very compassionate to me. Can anyone explain it to me, please? All right, well, I'm going to address only two aspects Uh, of what couldn't be a complicated matter. I mean, explaining the judgments of God uh, can have a lot of factors to it. Uh, So I'm not trying to say for a moment that what I'm going to tell you following is like the only answer, the exclusive answer. Some people would even argue whether or not this is the best answer, but this is the one that comes to my mind, to my heart, when I answer you. Um, Number one, and look, I got to pause here for a moment. Because I realize that what I'm going to say right now might seem harsh or even cruel uh, to some people. But I, I'm, I'm just trying to speak directly to y'all now. When a life is taken by the judgment of God, either indirectly or directly, 
I mean, directly, God could strike a person dead. There's a few instances of that in the Bible. Uh, Indirectly, God could allow that person to die in many ways. When a life is taken by the judgment of God, God is not doing something to that person that would never happen to them otherwise. Friends, we are all born with a death sentence. When a life is taken by the judgment of God, God is causing that person to die sooner than they would otherwise. He's not causing that person to die, so to speak. That person's death was set in motion the moment they were born. Friends, we all die, excepting those who are alive at the return of Jesus. And I say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But apart from that, we all die. And we are all born with a death sentence because of the sin of Adam. If the life of a child is taken in judgment, it means that death comes sooner to them than is expected, or sooner than feels right. So it's rightfully to be grieved at. Of course it is. I'm not trying to say, oh, well, nobody should grieve. No, 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 no. There's something that feels fundamentally wrong when a child dies. But it doesn't mean that death would never have come to that child otherwise. So that's one thing to consider. But but that's a a, a side issue almost in my mind. Here's the bigger issue. We need to recognize God's position and God's right as a judge. Let me see if I can communicate to you three principles of God's judgment. Um, Hold on here. Let me see if I can get set up here. Here's three principles of God's judgment. Number one, God is a judge. That's number one. Number two, God's jurisdiction as a judge is unlimited. And number three, God is a righteous, good, and fair judge. Let me just show you a few passages of scripture to reinforce that point, uh, that God is a judge. Um, Psalm 50, verse 6 says, Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Uh, Then we come to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 5, where it says, The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails, but the unjust knows no shame. And then another uh, favorite verse of mine having to do with the judgments and justice of God. Here's Psalm 9, beginning at verse 7. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Now, look, those are just three verses that sort of give the idea uh, that God is a judge, but there's a multitude of verses throughout the scriptures that give this idea. As a matter of fact, you could say that in some way or another, every New Testament author speaks of the judgment of God. Okay, now, the work of a judge, a good, righteous, fair judge, often doesn't seem fair to those who suffer. I mean, if you see a convicted criminal in a court of law, it's pretty rare for that criminal to say, You're right, judge. I deserved it. Bad on me. Way to go, judge. Good job. It's pretty rare, isn't it? So it's not unusual at all for a person to disagree, especially the person under judgment, to feel that God's judgment is unjust. But friends, there's a sense in which we are all under judgment. Now, in a human sense, we understand that judges have limited jurisdiction. A human judge has the right to judge crimes or cases for a certain jurisdiction, a geography, county, state, nation, whatever. 
or a certain type, family court, bankruptcy court, criminal court, whatever it is. But friends, none of these limitations apply to God. As Abraham said of the Lord in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, the Lord is the judge of all the earth. Now, by the way, I would not limit God's jurisdiction to the earth. He has authority over all the universes, but he remains judge of all the earth. Now, in God's judgment, we often find it difficult when God would bring judgment to a culture, a community, because that would include their little ones. For example, in Numbers chapter 31, God commanded Moses to use the army of Israel to take vengeance on the Midianites. And in carrying this out, Moses, speaking for the Lord, commanded Israel to kill all the male little ones. That's in Numbers chapter 31, verse 17. Now, it wasn't targeted only against them, but it was to be a comprehensive judgment to be carried out not only against guilty individuals, but against a guilty society or community. And friends, God has the right to judge not only individuals, he will judge individuals, but God also has the right to judge a society or a community. God did this with the flood in Genesis chapter 7. God did this with Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. He did it with Egypt in Exodus 11 and 12. He did it with Midian in Numbers 31. He did it with the Canaanites all throughout the book of Joshua. He did it with the northern kingdom of Israel in 2 Kings 17. God did it with the southern kingdom of Judah in 2 Kings 25. And in each of these cases, children and others who were not individually responsible for the corruption, the rebellion, the degradation of a nation, the the culture, the community, whatever, they perished also. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that their soul went to hell, but their life on this earth was taken. But friends, all of this is rooted in understanding God's jurisdiction of the judge. He is the judge of all the earth. And God has jurisdiction to judge communities, nations, societies. And such judgments go beyond punishing individuals for their personal guilt. Judgment can come upon society as a whole, including those who may not be personally and individually guilty, such as little children. And sometimes God sends these judgments directly like he did with the Genesis flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. And sometimes God sends nations or peoples as instruments of his judgments, as he did with the Assyrians against the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, this harsh judgment often makes people uncomfortable. I get that. But it's rooted in both God's fundamental right to judge and in his merciful granting of much time for people to repent. Friends, when God brought this judgment against the Egyptians, the judgment of the firstborn, please, please remember that, first of all, he gave Egypt almost 400 years to repent. Secondly, he gave Egypt plague after plague after plague, and they still wouldn't repent. Then, finally, As a last resort, as a last work, God brought the judgment of the firstborn, which involved children. Friends, we can know that God is a righteous judge. Now, I get it. There's some people who don't want God to be a judge. I suppose that guilty people would prefer for there not to be a judge. But that's not how it works. You can't wish away what it says about God in the Bible. You can't say, well, I don't like the idea of God as a judge. I don't think that's fair. No, it's just true. The Bible says God is judge. And it's true. God is love. But he's not only love. He's also a judge. Now, there are some people who think of themselves as being pro-Jesus but anti-God as judge. 
Friends, that's playing pick and choose Jesus. It's not taking the Jesus of the Bible. The Bible clearly explains that Jesus is the judge of all things. So, friends, Jesus is a judge, and he's a completely righteous, good judge. But I want to leave you with this. Jesus Christ is not only a judge. He was and is also the sacrifice that stands in the place of judgment. Because of his great love, Jesus Christ says to the world, you can escape judgment because I bore it for you. I, the judge himself, bore the judgment if you will only receive it. That's a heavy, beautiful thing. So, uh, my dance diary, I hope that helps you. I hope you understand that um, we understand what God did at Passover in the killing of relatively innocent children. I say relatively innocent because nobody's born absolutely innocent. Only Adam, Eve, and Jesus were born absolutely innocent. And only Jesus remained innocent. But certainly children are relatively innocent compared to older people. But as part of a culture, a community, a society, God has the right to bring judgment upon them. Okay, let me take a look now. Um, first, a couple questions related to the lead question. Deb asks, why does God allow rape? Well, Deb, God allows sin because ultimately sin works towards his eternal purpose. God can take and redeem and restore, and as it says in Romans chapter 8, work all things together for good for those who love God and those who are the called according to his purpose. I understand that violence and cruelty and abuse have made many, many people throughout all the generations to suffer greatly, terribly. But your question is really not so much why does God allow one particular sin, but why does God allow any sin? And he allows it because ultimately it'll work together for his purpose. And I will say this as well, Deb, God will judge those who sin. This is what the Bible says. And and the fact that there is evil and wrong in the world makes us take comfort in the fact that God is a judge and a righteous judge at that. Jerry asks, um, why are there two different judgments in the Bible? Well, Jerry, uh, that's a great question. Why are there two different judgments in the Bible? Because one is a judgment of believers and the other is the judgment of those who die without Christ. Without Christ, the issue that's judged is eternity. And by the way, without Christ, all are found guilty. But for believers, there's a judgment relevant to reward. Judgment has happened for the believer, but it happened at the cross. When all their sin, all their guilt, all their shame all their uncleanness, all their dishonor was judged in Jesus Christ and settled at the cross. Yes, it's a glorious thing that God basically says to all of humanity, there's two days of judgment when Jesus died on the cross and at his great white throne. And God, in a sense, says to humanity, pick your day of judgment. So, Jerry, it's appropriate for God to have separate judgment, separate judgment events, because they're judgments for separate things for both those who have their uh, sin settled at the cross. That's just a judgment for reward that they face at what Paul called the great white throne. No, excuse me, the judgment seat of Christ. And then there's the judgment for those who are outside of Christ, who have rejected Christ and a sacrifice. And those will face the judgment at the great white throne. And then we have a question from Tyrone. If a little child dies under the judgment of God, does that child lose his or her soul in hell? 
uh, Tyler, thank you, or excuse me, Tyrone, thank you so much for that question because I think it's a really relevant question. And I would say, Tyrone, absolutely not being the case. No. Because someone dies in judgment, especially if that judgment comes from God against a culture or a society or a nation, it does not mean that that individual goes to hell. It means that they were part of a community, a nation, a a culture that was under God's judgment. But God deals with each individual person as regard to their salvation, as regard to their eternal destiny. Our eternal destiny is not a matter of what group we belong to. No, no, no. That's up to each individual soul with God. But what group we belong to may indicate either a blessing or judgment from God. A bad person who lives among a blessed people will enjoy some blessing just because of that. And a good person who lives among a bad or cursed people will enjoy some measure of cursing because of that. So, Tyrone, great, great question. And I do just want to emphasize with that is that no. Uh, For example, we would not necessarily say that a child that died in a judgment that God brought upon a nation or a community, that child is not automatically destined for hell because they died in that judgment. So, no, what, what was judged was their earthly life, not necessarily their eternal life. Great question, Tyrone. I'm glad you asked it. Okay, we got a couple questions about vows. One from George, who simply asks, is it permitted to take a vow to God? And then another one from Marilyn, who asks, um, uh, Jephthah, and he kept his vow. Are you saying he didn't have to? Okay, well, great question. First of all, George, is it permitted to take make a vow to God? Uh, George, yes, yes, it is permitted, but the Bible does specifically caution us about our vows. Uh, that's in, in Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, it warns us that we should not be uh, quick, um, rushed to make a vow before God, because God takes our vows seriously. So think carefully. Don't make a vow to God unless uh, you've carefully considered it. And, And I do think it's important that if we do make a foolish vow to God and we end up breaking it, we shouldn't just ignore it, but we should regard that as a sin that we must repent of. There is um, forgiveness. There's forgiveness from God in the power of Jesus because of what he did on the cross. Of course, there's forgiveness, but it's a sin to be confessed of. So, yes, George, it's okay to make a vow to God. Now, Marilyn, hello to you in Louisiana. Um, When I say that Jephthah stubbornly kept his vow, I'm not saying that he didn't have to keep his, uh, that he... Many people don't keep vows. Now, I believe that the vow Jephthah made was foolish. By the way, I'll just lay it out on the table here. Um, In Judges chapter 11, I don't believe that Jephthah uh, murdered or made a human sacrifice of his daughter. I think that he sacrificed her by committing her to the service of the tabernacle. Uh, There was this practice in, in Judaism it's detailed in the Bible that God didn't want human sacrifice, but he would accept a monetary payment or some kind of uh, stand-in for the sacrifice. So I don't believe that Jephthah offered his daughter as a human sacrifice, but he gave her over to the service of the tabernacle, and that's how she was sacrificed, so to speak, and that's how she served. And there's a lot of reasons why I think that back in Judges chapter 11. But... um. Jephthah was committed to his vow, uh, even though in some sense it was a foolish one. And that showed him to be at least somewhat a man of faith. And that's why he's mentioned in that context in Hebrews. So when we say that did he have to keep his vow, 
Well, if he wanted to be a righteous man, he should. And I think he kept it in a righteous way, even though it was a great personal sacrifice for him and for his daughter, of course, uh, to give her up to the service of the tabernacle, somewhat as a nun would be in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, many people would not follow through on such a sacrifice, and Jephthah did. Okay, thank you for that question there, Marilyn. Uh, next question from Martin and Nancy. Um, our question has to do with quandaries in the garden. Okay, part one. If, as James teaches, the mechanics of sin begin with each person being tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, how exactly could Eve even be tempted in the garden if she was created as a sinless being? Would you have to have an innate evil desire to be capable of choosing to sin to begin with? All right, uh, I'm going to answer this, Martin and Nancy, one by one. I believe that Eve's temptation in the garden, and Adam's as well, was somewhat different than what James is speaking about. <laughs> James is speaking of the entire human race after the fall of Adam and Eve. Uh, James is speaking of how temptation works in us now. He, he's not speculating on how temptation worked in Adam and Eve. So it, it's not a problem for us to say uh, temptation worked somewhat differently in Adam and Eve than it worked in the way that James describes. James isn't wrong, it's just he's describing what temptation is like for all of the human race with the exclusion of Adam, Eve, and Jesus, because those were the only ones born without a sin nature. So that's really the first question. We shouldn't think it's weird if what James said excludes those three rare exceptions, people who were born without any kind of sin nature to speak of. But then part two, could Adam have turned the tide in the garden if he hadn't given in to his wife's sin? What if he condemned Eve's action? Could the garden have remained holy and perfect? Okay, uh, Martin and Nancy, <laughs> I'm going to give a qualified maybe yes to your second question, to part two, but, but just because we're dealing in the realm of pure hypothetical. But he, here's what I'm just trying to say. Adam did not have to sin. He did sin. He chose to sin, but he didn't have to. God did not program him to sin. God did not make him sin. Adam sinned and he didn't have to, but he did. And so we can speculate, we can sort of dream about, well, what would have happened if Adam had not sinned? Would have there been some kind of permanent separation between Eve because she had failed in some way, but Adam had not, on and on and on. It's interesting speculation. So if we want to speculate that maybe the garden could have remained holy and perfect, maybe God could have worked redemption some other way, that's fine, but it's just purely in the realm of speculation. As long as we understand that, that's fine. It's not wrong to speculate about these what-ifs in the Bible, just as long as that's clear on what you're doing. You're speculating about a hypothetical. So I'd give a very qualified maybe yes to maybe the garden could have remained pure and holy, because the Bible is very clear that Adam is responsible for the fall of the human race, even though you can make a strong case that Eve sinned before Adam, yet Adam's sin was that which was responsible for the fall of the human race. So, interesting things, uh, Martin and Nancy. Uh, blessings to you, and thank you for that question. All right. Next question today comes from Tunal Banan Shugotre. Hello from Sweden. Hey, son. Uh, now, he says here, when getting baptized in water, is a little bit of water on the head enough, or do we have to get immersed with the whole body in water? Okay, Tunal Banan Shugotre, I would just say simply this. Immersion, dunking, is the normal and regular way that people should be baptized. That's what baptism is. It's an immersion. It's to be covered over. 
It's to be overwhelmed to something. That's the idea of baptism in the New Testament. Um, when you take a look at the earliest baptismals that have been discovered in church history and church architecture, they're not little cups that hold little bits of water for sprinkling. They're places that people can be immersed in. The, the roots of baptism go back in some ways to the Jewish ceremonial washings, which were by immersion, the mikvah. So look, that's normal. Now, if somebody wants to say, uh, okay, uh, it, can there be exceptions that, yes, theoretically, there could be exceptions to that. Uh, a person is on their deathbed and they can't be immersed, but they want to be baptized. Could it be okay to just sprinkle them? Yes. There can be rare exceptions, but it needs to be recognized. Those are exceptions. The normal, the regular, the biblical mode of baptism is immersion. And by the way, I would only say this, that baptism by sprinkling only came into wide use because some segments of the Christian church did not want to immerse infants. And since I don't believe that infant baptism is biblical, that's baptism apart from faith on behalf of the, on the part of the person who gets baptized, I think that sprinkling is a wrong innovation brought into the church to sort of exclude the idea of believer's baptism or to get around it in some way. So, um, I hope that's helpful for you there. Okay, now Andres asks another question relevant to baptism. I've heard there are three types of baptism. Is this true? If so, can you explain them? <laughs> well, Andres, since you're not listening to me what the three types of baptism are, I'm just going to speculate here. Okay, the, the New Testament thinks, speaks of baptism, okay, I, I think in at least four ways. Jesus spoke of a baptism, well, let, let's see, the most common way is baptism with water, just being baptized into water. Clearly, the New Testament speaks about that. Then, in Romans chapter 6, Paul speaks about baptism into Christ. Now, I, I think that that is, and I know there's debate, the, the, Christians from different theological traditions would disagree with me on this, but that's okay. I think that baptism into Christ is distinct from water baptism. I think baptism into Christ is our radical identification with Christ. It's certainly related to water baptism, but it's separate. It's more than just being dunked in water. It's truly being baptized into Jesus Christ, totally identified in him. So I can think of water baptism Baptism into Christ. Now, again, th there's some Christian traditions that say those two things are identical. I think they're somewhat distinct. So I'm going to count four. Water baptism, baptism into Christ. Then Jesus said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's something that the Bible speaks about, about a person being overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit, uh, immersed in the Spirit. And I'm not sp saying overwhelmed necessarily in an experiential sense. I just mean covered over, N not just a little dipping of the toe in the Holy Spirit, but to be completely immersed in the Spirit of God. That speaks of a measure of overflow. Jesus spoke directly of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but Jesus also spoke in the Gospels of a baptism of fire, and that is a participation of suffering that a believer endures. So, Andres, those are four aspects. Again, some people might combine baptism in water with baptism into Christ, and, and I understand why, but I would make somewhat of a distinction there. So, I would count at least four ways that the New Testament speaks of baptism. Hope that's helpful for you there, Andre. And let me just give a little word here. Uh, I think all four methods of baptism, all four aspects of baptism are to be for the experience of the believer. Yes, you must be baptized into Christ. You are not saved if you're not baptized. If you are not thoroughly identified in Jesus Christ, your, your soul isn't right with God. Number two, every believer should be baptized in water. 
Absolutely. It's, it's part of our obedience to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ told his followers to be baptized in water, so do it. Number three, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Every believer should be living in the overflow, so to speak, of God's Spirit, of that work, an ongoing work of God's Spirit in their life. And then finally, there's a baptism of suffering that is appointed for every believer. So I think all four of those aspects are for the believer. Thank you for your question there, Andres. Um, all right, I, I look at the time here, uh, not that we're going to end soon. We've got a lot more questions to do. But we're sort of in the middle of the hour, and so I do want to just give a request for prayer. I just, uh, just pray for health and healing for two dear friends of mine, one named Paul and one named Keith. If you could, please keep Paul and Keith in your prayers regarding their health. Thank you for that. Okay, God knows their situation. God knows their last name. God knows where they are. But I, I'm just giving this out to you because I don't want to explain the details of each situation. But these are some dear people to me and actually dear people to the Enduring Word family. Please pray for Paul and Keith. Okay, uh, next question. Um, Tony asks, Hi, Pastor Guzik. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus said to look to the birds and the plants which are naturally tended to. How do we reconcile this verse with the fact that there are people in the world who are starving and naked? I know God's word to be true, but to be honest, I wouldn't feel comfortable sharing this verse with someone who was experiencing this firsthand. This has always been a hard verse for me. Thank you. Tony, you're right. Listen, it, it's true that not only have there been individuals in the world who have died from starvation or exposure, uh, but there's also been believers, wonderful, Jesus-loving, soul-committed-to-God believers who have died. And, and I think what we just have to say from that, Tony, regarding Jesus' word there in Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, is that um, what Jesus was saying there was not an absolute promise in every situation. Now, the, the Bible's filled with these. But what Jesus' point there was very clear. The whole point was, don't worry. And, okay, I, I feel self-conscious talking about this. Because right now in my life, look, things could change in a month or in a year or whatever. But right now in my life, I'm, I mean, I'm well provided for. I, I don't have to worry about where my next meal is going to come from. You can look at me and see that I'm, I'm well fed enough. So it makes me feel very self-conscious to say this, but, but I do think it's true. That even if a person... A believer, let's say, even if a believer were to die of starvation or malnutrition, God would still want them to trust him and to not worry, so to speak, but simply to commit their situation, even their calamity to God. I don't know if that makes sense to you, um, Tony, because it is a difficult thing to talk about. But I think what we get down to is here, what Jesus said about God providing for the world, overwhelmingly it's true. But um, it's not a universal promise. And I, I will say one other thing. Especially today in the modern world, overwhelmingly so in the world. Starvation, famine, malnutrition are political problems. They're not problems of agriculture. God has provided the world with enough food. It's just, there's a lot of political corruption. There's a lot of political foolishness 
that builds economic systems that are not able to provide for people. Um, But it's not because God hasn't provided enough food. God does provide enough food for the world to get along, but in certain places in the world today, because of war, because of politics, because of terrible economics, people don't get the food that they need. So, Tony, you're right. This is a difficult question. I feel that my answer to you, honestly, is inadequate, but those are some thoughts that I have on that. Thank you for a question. We, we'll take the tough questions here, too, and what Tony has brought is, is a legitimately tough question, but those are some of my thoughts on it. Next question comes um, from Grandma, who asks, in your opinion, why do you believe most followers of the Jewish faith reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Well, Grandma, I, I would say this. That there's a lot of aspects to that. Um, I think the number one reason is, is because um, there's a veil over their eyes. That's what the Bible says, that there's a veil over the eyes of Israel. And when that veil is lifted, They'll be able to see Jesus for who he is and see their need for Jesus for what it is. So I, I think that um, one answer to that question is they're just veiled. There's, there's an obstacle. There's something preventing them uh, to see with clarity um, where, the world, uh, where Jesus, uh, who Jesus is and what he did for them. So that's one aspect of it. I think another aspect of it is, I I think we would have to admit, that many Jewish people have been extremely soured to Christianity because for many centuries, the worst enemies that the Jewish people had were Christians, was the church. That's to the shame of Christianity. I'm grateful that it's not that way today. I'm grateful that it can rightly be said that uh, among many Christians today, the best friend that the Jewish people have are Bible-believing evangelical Christians. But it hasn't always been that way in history, and there's sort of a cultural memory of that. But then here's a third reason. Uh, It's because as Christians, we look at a Jewish people, a Jewish person, and we kind of say this. Come to Jesus, give your life to him, and fulfill your Judaism. You can be a Jewish believer. You can fulfill your Judaism and trust in Jesus as the Messiah. That's how we tend to see it as Christians. Most Jews think that for them to become a Christian is for them to cease to be Jewish. It's a forsaking, it's a rejection of their Judaism and not a fulfillment of it. And that's a very different perspective. So um, maybe that's part of the veil that will be lifted from the eyes of the Jewish people when God pours out his spirit upon them. So I hope that's helpful for you there. Grandma, now here's another question about Judaism. Carrie asks, Did the actions of the Pharisees in rejecting Jesus effectively condemn most of Israel until the end of the church age? Um, Carrie, no, I, I wouldn't put it only at that. I mean, obviously, the Jewish rejection of Jesus, and and I would say, if I could be quite honest with it, I would say there was a double Jewish rejection of Jesus. There was a Jewish rejection of Jesus while he walked this earth that uh, led to their forwarding Jesus to the Roman officials so that the Romans could crucify him. There was that rejection of Jesus. But then there was also a rejection of the Jesus that was preached to them. Praise the Lord. There was a remnant that believed on Jesus during the days of his earthly um, ministry. And there was a remnant that believed on Jesus in the first century of the church. Yes, but largely the Jewish people rejected Jesus both during his earthly ministry and then afterwards uh, during the days of the New Testament church. But, um, no, I don't think that condemns Israel until the end of the church age, 
But I do think it's related to the veil that's over their eyes that I just discussed in the answer previously given to uh, grandma. So, yeah, I, I think that that's putting too much on a singular, though terrible, event. Um, it, it's more complicated. It's broader than that, is what I would say, Carrie. So thank you there for your question. Let me... All right, next question comes with... Um, uh, Rolling with a uh, question. What is the meaning of unequally yoked? Well, you're referring to that passage. What is it there in first Corinthians where Paul says that believers should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now it's very interesting be because the predominant way that evangelical Christians, at least in the last 50 years, I, I don't know about before that. I just can't speak to it authoritatively. But the dominant way that evangelical Christians in the last 50 years or so have applied that has been primarily to the idea of marriage. Don't marry an unbeliever. And they'll often talk about, well, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And it's just automatically given as the idea that a Christian should not marry an unbeliever. Now, I believe that's true, and I believe that's relevant to that verse. I believe that if a believer marries an unbeliever, if a Christ acceptor marries a Christ rejecter, that that is an unequal yoking. I do believe it fulfills it, but Paul's context there in 1 Corinthians, where he speaks about that unequally yoking, it's not referring only or even predominantly to marriage. It's referring to any partnership with an unbeliever. And we should just be careful about the partnerships that we get into with those who have different fundamental values than we do. And look, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the fundamental value of your life is that you're living your life for the glory of God, for obedience to Jesus Christ. You're his disciple. That's just kind of how it is for a believer. And so somebody should be very careful about entering into a partnership with somebody who has different priorities in their life. So I, I would just say that, yes, it does apply to marriage, but that wasn't Paul's immediate context in 1 Corinthians, and the application of it goes far beyond marriage. Hope that's helpful for you there. Margaret asks this question, who are the people that God gave up in Romans chapter 1, verse 24? Does this text show that God controls the evil impulses in man and keeps him from sin? Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Well, those whom God gave up in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, are just basically sinners. People who have energetically pursued sin and what God does in giving people up to their sin is basically remove restraints. I, I want you to think about this. Think about all the restraints there are on sinful behavior. Just on normal, everyday people in our society today. Okay, I, I want to do this. I know it's wrong, but I'm afraid I might get arrested and prosecuted. I'm afraid I might lose my job. I'm afraid all my friends will reject me if it's known that I've done this. I'm afraid that my family will disown me. Um, I'm afraid that my reputation in the community will be ruined. All of those things are legitimate, and might I even say proper, restraints of sin. But added to all those is another one. There's just something inside of a person that says, I can't do that. That's not me. I'm not going to do that. Let me tell you, that inward working of the conscience, that inward working of a restraint against sin, that's a gift from God. And that's a gift that God can revoke. And God can revoke it in judgment. God can say to a person, and this is sort of the sense of Romans chapter 1 here, 
You're rejecting me? You want to cast off restraint? Fine, I'll take away the restraints. And that is not a blessing. Friends, it's a curse. It's a judgment of God. So really, Margaret, that's just the way that I would explain it there. Um, The people whom God gave up are simply um, dedicated, focused sinners. I I, I think that the uh, focus of Paul there in those particular verses in Romans chapter 1 have to do with sexual sin, but I, I wouldn't confine it to that. It certainly includes that, and you can see these workings in it, but I wouldn't confine it to sexual sin. I think the application can, in fact, be broader than that. Thank you for that question, Margaret, and blessings to you. Asia asks the question, uh, from my point of view, almost everything about salvation requires faith, and it's not a simple thing to have. So, Pastor, how can I increase my faith in God? Complete faith, so to speak. All right, Asia, let me give you a quick answer and then a longer answer. Um, The Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Fill your heart and mind and meditation with the word of God, and I think you're going to grow in faith. Simply from that promise from the book of Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's a quick answer, but I'll give you another answer, Asia. The other answer is simply this, is that um, stop telling yourself that faith is so difficult. Why should it be difficult to believe God, to trust God. You, you believe people all the time. Uh, you buy an airline ticket and you believe that the people at the website, that that ticket's valid and you're going to go to the airport and assume you're going to fly it. You believe them. You pick up your car from the mechanic. You think it got fixed. You don't think that he subverted it in some way. You believe them. You go to a restaurant, get food. You don't believe it's poison. You eat it. You believe them. We believe people all the time. God is worthy of our faith. And look, I'm not trying to diminish that it's a challenge. Of course it is. But if we just bring it back to the simple question, can I trust God or not? Well, then we just come, yes, I can trust God. His promises are true and I can rest in them. Asia, I pray that the year 2024 be a year that you truly grow in faith. All right, we're getting up to the top of our hour now. We got the lightning round. Moderator's been tough on me. Here's a big lightning round. And I'm going to try to answer the question more succinctly, try to make it a true lightning round. Let me refresh myself just for a moment. And then tackle the first lightning round for the year 2024. Are you ready? Am I ready? Let's see if we can do this. Sarah May asks, hi from Hopkinsville, Kentucky. I'd like to know where the Garden of Eden is. Uh, Sarah, the Garden of Eden was erased by the flood of Noah. And so we don't know exactly where on the earth. We know that it was somewhere in the area of what today we call the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. But uh, again, uh, that geography was erased and reformed after Noah's flood. So we don't really know. Thank you for that question. Loopy asks, someone asked me if Adam and Eve had a belly button. I don't think they did, but I don't know the answer to that. Loopy, I am on the side of saying no belly button for Adam and Eve. Certainly they did not need it because they were not born in utero, so to speak, uh, from a mother's womb. And that's where the belly button comes into place. So uh, is it possible that they did not have a belly button or if they did, it was purely cosmetic? They didn't need one because they never had an umbilical cord. So I'm on team no belly button for Adam and Eve. Uh, Bob asks, should Christians observe the Sabbath day? Bob, uh, absolutely they should, but you got to hear me out on this. The Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our rest. He is the completion of God's work. That's why the Sabbath day is at the end of the week in God's plan. Um, Jesus Christ is our rest and is our finished work. 
Every day is a day for the believer to honor Jesus Christ and his finished work on our behalf. Every day is the Sabbath, so to speak, for the believer. So, um, yes, in that sense. Uh, And in addition to that, I would say that God has built us so that we need regular rest, and one day in seven is a great way to do it. Beyond that, the Sabbath obligation that Israel was under, under the Old Covenant, that is not binding on believers today, uh, but we should observe a day of rest, and we should observe that every day is a Sabbath of rest in Jesus Christ, because the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, We get that not only from Paul's words in Colossians, saying, let no man judge you regarding a Sabbath day, but also from the idea of the Sabbath rest as it's carried out in uh, or explained in Hebrews chapter 4. Okay, next question comes from Jens, who asked, uh, in John 21, do you think there's any valid spiritual or theological meaning for the number 153 regarding the 153 fish caught. Yes, you need to look up my commentary there in John chapter 21, because I explain what many different people have thought concluded, looking for an allegorical meaning. Yes, I would just say this. The number 153 fish there is important because that's the number of fish that they caught. It's important because it adds historic credibility to it. It shows that this is the kind of thing, the kind of detail that fishermen would notice and mention. Uh, Fishermen love to measure their success, and that was a measurement of their success. So uh, as far as allegorical meanings, I don't buy them. So please look up my commentary, Enduring Word Bible Commentary. Look up what I have to say to that in John chapter 21. I actually think it's kind of humorous to see the different allegorical interpretations that have been given to that. But I think it's important as a number that reflects the reality and the eyewitness aspect of the account. Next question comes from Leo, who asks, Hello, Pastor Guzik from Oxnard, California, Calvary Chapel, Oxnard. Hey, I just met with your pastor, Lance Ralston, today. Uh, Paul said, absent from the body, present with the Lord. What happens to our body that's cremated or buried? Thank you. Love your app. I love our app, too. Get our app on uh the iTunes App Store or Google Play, absolutely free. It'll help you access the commentary and other resources as well. Now, what happens to a body that is cremated or buried? Listen, uh, there's a principle of physics that says that matter can't disappear. Uh, so the molecules, the atoms of our body remain. Even if they're all broken up in little pieces and subsumed in the earth, God can assemble the atoms, the molecules of our body, no matter where they're distributed. Look, I don't want to speak in a grotesque way, but even if a person gets blown to bits, God can reassemble the molecules of their body into a resurrection body, and that's what's going to happen at the end of the age. So, Leo, it's really that simple. Um, Adonis asks this question, How would you use scripture to show that Genesis chapter 11, 1 through 9, the Tower of Babel, uh, and Acts chapter 17 shouldn't be used to teach against miscegenation? Here's the passage from Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 26. And he's made from one blood every uh, nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined in their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. It's a beautiful passage there in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul preaching. Um, I I would just note this, um, Adonis. In the Acts 17 passage, this is how it reads in the New King James Bible, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. Well, notice, I just want you to notice that the word blood there is in italics, meaning it's been supplied by the translators. More literally, the sentence would read, and he has made from one every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. So the idea isn't preserving um, a particular kind of blood lineage. The um, purpose is just to realize that we all descend from a common ancestor, Adam. Uh, Is there value 
in that God has distributed people in nations, in groups, in communities? Yes. But there's no biblical prohibition to the mixing of those communities. Uh, It it should be done wisely. It should be done in a righteous way. I'm just thinking of uh, migration patterns and all the rest of it. But generally speaking, and I'll just speak to believers, (laughs) believers have freedom in Jesus Christ to to marry whom they would please. I'll, I'll just put it to you this way. If a person, a believer, feels more comfortable marrying someone of their own race or lineage, fine. You have freedom in Christ to do that. If a believer in Christ feels more comfortable or is more attracted to some from another race or lineage, fine. You have freedom in Christ to do it. It's not something that judgment should be passed either way. It's just a matter of Christian liberty in that regard. Um, So I would say of anybody that would use those passages, Genesis 11 and Acts 17 to... um, to promote racial or cultural or ethnic division and to prohibit racial or cultural or ethnic mixing, I would say that they are uh, misapplying those scriptures and making more of them than God ever intended. All right, next question comes from uh, Mugisha. I hope I'm saying your name correctly. Jesus said that he will tell some people that even though they did miracles in his name, he doesn't acknowledge them. So my question is, will those people go to heaven? Thanks. Uh, Mugisha, I would say, no, they will not. Because Jesus in that thing says, depart from me. Um, so no, the, the implication is those people are not going to heaven. They are not in right relationship with God, even though they were able to accomplish some astounding spiritual things. Uh, next question comes from Banks, who asks, can you give a detailed and simple explanation of Matthew chapter 28? Hey, this is the lightning round. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Of course, the reasoning behind my question would be to fully understand what Matthew 22, 14 says in simple terms. Thank you. Um, Many are called, but few are chosen. Um, Okay, I cannot give you a detailed and simple explanation uh, because it is the lightning round. But simply in the context of that passage, the invitation went out to many but few responded. Um, Many received the invitation, but only those chosen respond. How do you know that they're chosen? Because they responded. It's really kind of that simple. I think we can overcomplicate these things, uh, edging off into determinism or fatalism. Look, the, the parable simply shows that a broad invitation went out and only a few responded. And by Jesus's words in verse 14, I think that we would connect those who responded with the chosen. So it's just that simple. Hope that's helpful for you there, Banks. And sorry, can't give a longer answer to you in our lightning round. And here is our final question from Hannah. Hello, David. Do you have any advice to trying, in trying to trust God when at times of stress in school? Hannah, here's my advice to you. Um, meditate on the scriptures and pray the scriptures repeatedly. If I had a big test at school and I was stressed about it, I would think about that passage from Isaiah, for example. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. And I I would just meditate. Lord, it says you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Lord, I want that person to be me. Keep me in perfect peace. I want to keep my mind on you. Now, of course, it's school. You need to work. You need to prepare. But I would just say, find some key and helpful passages of Scripture speaking about the love of God, the help of God, the care of God, and meditate on them. Repeat them to yourself. Memorize them. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Look for ways to keep your mind on God and his word. And that's a way that helps me with stress. Hope that's helpful to you, Hannah. God bless you. And God bless you all. Thank you so much for joining us for today's Q&A. I'm going to close with this. Um, Remember in your prayers, two friends of mine who are suffering 
medical difficulty. Keith and Paul. Lord knows who they are, where they are, and what they're suffering from. But if you could remember to pray for Keith and Paul, it would be a blessing to me. Thank you so much. Here we are. We've wrapped up our first live Q&A for the year 2024. So pleased that you could join me today. And God willing, and if we live, I'll be with you next week at the same time. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.